James, have you had a chance to read the script? Yeah, yeah, I just read it. Cool, cool. Oh, yeah, I forget that you're a freakishly fast reader. It's annoying. Very envious. Okay, so I guess <laughs> we'll get started then. Um, all, all good? We sound good? Okay, great. So hello and welcome to the very first episode of Don't Touch Your Face, our new daily podcast in which we will update you with the latest news about the coronavirus, what's being done to contain its spread, and how all of this could affect you. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer here at Foreign Policy. And I'm James Palmer, FP's senior editor. So James, what have you been following in the news today on coronavirus? Well, the biggest thing has been this uh, explosion in numbers in Spain where we've seen like a doubling Mm -hmm. of cases. And, you know, the Spanish have naturally responded by pronouncing a national health emergency. And this is a a pattern that's pretty worrying in Europe, where we're seeing just these numbers running out of control in the context of, you know, first world countries, countries with good health care, good health services. And what's going on in Italy now? Because over the weekend, they put the Lombardy region on lockdown, effectively. Yeah, 16 million people under quarantine and these terrifying death figures. uh, They're now at a 5% case fatality rate. Wow which is higher than anywhere outside of the initial epicenter in Hubei. And what happened in Hubei was that the the health system basically collapsed in the early weeks, so treatable cases weren't saved. And something similar may have happened, I think, with these Italian cases. Either that or the numbers we're seeing are just a small part of a much bigger outbreak. And so that would mean that we're talking about sort of 15,000, 20,000 people already infected there. Yikes. And, you know, there's, and we're starting to see, and we're going to see a lot more of this throughout the world, these kind of knock-on effects. And mm-hmm. so in Italy, the prison riots, uh, 27 prisons rioted over the weekend because inmates were worried about not being able to see their family, not being able to go outside for exercise, that they were basically going to be trapped and left alone to die. You know, we had prison outbreaks in China, um, probably even prison outbreaks in China that we don't know about in Xinjiang and other places that were under sort of lockdown and Uh, suppression before. Um, And already in Italy, six people have been killed in these riots. Wow. And speaking of prisons, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, announced that the state is going to start producing its own hand sanitizer, which has, of course, been in very high demand in the past few weeks. Um, And the hand sanitizer is actually going to be produced with prison labor um, by New York state prisoners who are paid... Prison labor being paid uh, 16 cents an hour, I think? I've seen figures of 16 cents to about a dollar, but yes, certainly a fraction of of minimum wage. Um, And, you know, this could possibly see an interesting conversion of two of the biggest news stories of 2020 so far, because don't forget, one of the newest residents of New York's Rikers Island prison is, of course, Harvey Weinstein. So, James, our goal with the podcast is to keep this short and snappy and to update people with the important context of what they need to know. So I'm going to cut straight to the chase. We're both writers. You're an editor. Why are we the ones to start a podcast about a global epidemic? Well, I think the key word there is global. This is a story not just about public health, but about the ways in which the world is connected and about the ways in which those connections are broken. And we're seeing that happen all over the place from car factories in South Korea closing because of the coronavirus, to traders from Iwo in China going to Mexico, possibly carrying the virus with them, to the virus reaching all the way in five months from a a market in Wuhan to an Episcopalian preacher in Washington, D.C. And following those connections and seeing how they've shaped our world today and what's going to change is really what this podcast is about. 
So usually when you speak to more informed people about a topic, they're less freaked out, right? Because they know more about it. They can see the bigger picture. And it's, you know, those of us on the outside that are are made nervous by headlines and snippets of, of the worst case scenario. But what made me nervous, James, uh, and go out and buy a whole bunch of Lysol last week was speaking to you. And you knew more than anyone else in our office about the coronavirus. And you were the most freaked out. Why was that? So from the very start, I was really worried about this because... It was obvious that China was taking this problem immensely seriously. And I think for a lot of people here in America, China doesn't really feel real. It's a faraway place that doesn't touch you. But as soon as the Chinese numbers started to explode, and particularly when the quarantine was imposed in Wuhan, I realized that this was a massive story and it was one that was going to shape not just China, but the entire world. And I also went out and bought a bunch of cleaning supplies. (laughs) So I can't think of a global crisis in my lifetime, at least, which has impacted so many people all at once and in so many different ways. The most drastic, of course, is the over 100,000 people now who have contracted the virus and then the millions upon millions who've been quarantined at home trying to stop the spread of it. Um, But there's also the cancellation of events, less people are flying internationally, and even down to the micro-human interactions. Like even here in Washington, D.C., less people are as willing to shake hands. Um, People are overriding that impulse. You know, in France, they've been asked to do away with cheek kissing. Yeah, I believe uh, French politicians have been asked to make do with only one mistress for the moment. (laughs) And we've seen, you know, you're you're already seeing social norms change, went to meet people today and, you know, we did the elbow bump, which Mm -hmm. I think is very effective because it's kind of ridiculous. (laughs) And so it builds a sort of sense of community while signaling to others, you know, we're all in this together. This is something that is changing behavior for everyone. And, you know, really, that's why we've called the podcast Don't Touch Your Face, because there are three pieces of key advice that health experts are giving out to help reduce transmissions. And those are social distancing, so cancelling events, keeping space between people, not touching each other. General hygiene, of course, like wiping down surfaces, hand washing. And this piece of advice that I think has been the hardest for a lot of people to go along with, which is don't touch your face, because the face contains what's called the T-zone, the areas where it's really easy to transmit those bacteria, those viruses from your grubby little hands <laughs> to your soft, beautiful, vulnerable face, your, when you rub your eyes, you know, mm-hmm. when you stick your fingers in your mouth. And I think one of the things that this has made us realize is how much we all touch our face and how when we're told to do it, we desperately, desperately want to do it. Those itches, those urges, the wanting to just like rub the sleep out of your eyes. It's a very human thing. Mm. And that's what the virus is going to interrupt. It's going to interrupt all these parts of being human, all these, all these natural sort of everyday things from hugging people to going out to dinner to going to parties and concerts and yeah. events. And we've already seen that lockdown in China and the huge psychological and emotional damage it did to people. And so I think one of the things we're trying to do on the podcast is to remind people that's going to happen, but also to provide some kind of sense of being together in this, that this is an experience the whole world is basically going to go through. And if we're going to get through it, we need to build that sense of community. Right. So it's about herd immunity is what we're talking about here. Yeah. And by herd immunity, we don't mean that you're all cattle. We mean (laughs) that even if you're young and healthy... And therefore, you have a very low chance of dying of the virus yourself, even though, of course, you know, the potential of days in bed and hospitalization is no joke. 
you could pass the disease on to those who are much more vulnerable, elderly people, immunocompromised people, people with existing respiratory conditions. And so it's not just about protecting yourself, it's about protecting others. And that's why we all need to take these measures. And to talk about that, I talked earlier to public health expert Dr. Annie Sparrow, currently in Geneva with the World Health Organization. I do advise WHO, but that's not my major role. My major role is um, as a doctor who works and trains other doctors in the Middle East and in Africa. And so I'm um, quite unusual in that I'm still a practicing doctor, which makes me completely unusual at WHO because there's no such thing as a doctor who actually knows what the ground looks like anymore or could recognize a patient at 10 paces, let alone treat them. So do you think that that's a problem with these organizations, that they've become too detached from that sort of on-the-ground reality? Well, yes, I do, actually, because I think we've forgotten what the ground looks like. And I think it goes back to this disease model, which we have been living with for the last century, basically. And, you know, I wrote about this in Foreign Policy, that we are obsessed with this, you know, magic bullet that's going to cure it. And we think it even works for infectious diseases, but it doesn't. But it means that we rock up to these places and we say, we're here to fix your corona or your Ebola or your polio or whatever it is, which is predominantly important important to a Western audience. And actually, it's very rarely the biggest need of communities there and wherever there is. And so if we forget what actually matters to people most of all, then it's much harder for us to come up with targeted, focused, thoughtful solutions and, you know, applying the same solution everywhere. It's a bit like the difference between Italy and South Korea. Well, you know, in Italy, we're seeing a 5% mortality rate and a much older Uh, calculation. And that's sort of a bigger problem because we haven't really thought about how we can adjust ourselves to different countries with different healthcare systems with different vulnerabilities. We're seeing these uh, lots of, you know, should we be learning from the Chinese model? Should we be learning from this models? But all of this has to be adapted very much to local situations and local needs, right? Sure. And one of the problems with the Chinese model, well, it's not a problem, but one of the reasons sort of why it worked to suppress or contain it was that they were able to lock down the entire country. I mean, we're thinking that it's just Wuhan you know, and Hubei province that were really, you know, totally locked down and quarantined. But in fact, the entire country wasn't allowed to move. If you wanted to go to Beijing, you had to be in mandatory quarantine for 14 days. So it was an effective way of applying a travel restriction to the entire country. Now, Italy can't do that. Because, you know, they're just locking down northern Italy. Mm-hmm. But so that may slow some, you know, slow down some of the drift, you know, upwards here towards Geneva. But it can't be effective in the same way that it was effective in, in China. And even in China, I mean, now Shanghai is seeing cases ping pong back again from South Korea and from Italy and from Iran. And we're not set up to do that at all in the U.S., which is only just starting to hit the fan in the U.S. So we just had the first confirmed case here in Washington, D.C., What should America be doing? What should the priorities in the United States be right now? Well, I think you have three real priorities, and you have to stop the local transmission wherever the virus emerges, and with a specific eye to the vulnerable population. So elderly people and those over 65 are vulnerable everywhere, but those with comorbidities, those with more immunodepression, those with cancer or with immunodepressive disease, for example, and then secondly, we have to protect healthcare workers because China was able to ship in nearly 50,000 to Hubei. Now, no other country has the capability to do that. I mean, in, in D.C., you know, one of the infectious disease doctors there said, I'm putting my life on the line by working, you know, because that's really what we are all doing as doctors, because 
the best PPE, personal protective equipment in the world, can't protect you all the time. And then thirdly, we really need to put as much effort as we can into stopping it from becoming endemic, which mm-hmm. is looking less likely, James, now. And this is something we haven't dealt with before, right? Because we hadn't, we didn't have to deal with it in SARS because the last case, you know, was in, I think, July that, you know, 2003. And although that was already in the middle of the European summer, then there'd been a huge sort of fall in cases, which we also see in influenza and which we also saw in the swine flu epidemic of 2009. But we've seen it now. We see it in many, many countries across the Southern Hemisphere. So I think if we don't get on top of it in those places, then we're going to see year-round transmission and this volleyballing effect back and forth between the northern and southern hemispheres. Mm -hmm. Just final question. I think we've seen a lot of overconfidence, you know, in in people saying, oh, this is, you know, just the flu or this is the president, you know, President Trump saying this is like the flu on the belief that it's only going to affect the old. But this is the thing with diseases. Their range is so huge and the human body is such a weird place. What can we do to kind of stay alert to that, to stay on our feet? Well, I think you said it. I mean, this is not flu. This is not influenza. It's not SARS. It's not MERS. It's its own thing. And we don't really have a good handle on that yet. And there is absolutely no evidence to say that this is going to go away magically in April. That's magical thinking. I mean, like I said with SARS, I mean, it tailed down and influenza did also. But remembering that swine flu itself appeared in March of 2009. And it's doing all through the summer. So we cannot afford to be complacent. And this is, I mean, this is just now sort of hitting Europe in ways that we are seeing a huge escalation in cases. And we're not set up in the US. We can't shut down cities or, or places. And our healthcare system isn't really very well designed either. It's like if you're doing the responsible thing, you can go to hospital and get yourself tested. And then you'll probably walk away with a $3,000 bill, even if you don't have it. And we need to think of how we can actually start to protect people and, and you know, stagger working environments so that people are working in less crowded places perhaps or just you know start to think about how we could protect our elderly also because remembering that in the spanish flu it wasn't just the spanish flu that killed them it was the fact that afterwards their lungs are so ripped and shredded by this filthy disease that they were all set up to have bacterial pneumonia so at least half of all those deaths were caused by bacterial pneumonia by staph and strep and so forth so what we can anticipate in in those who are you know, more vulnerable to this disease is that they will need antibiotics for for that afterwards and that they do need to have excellent nutrition to help fight this. And what else can we think about, about how to sort of protect people who are more vulnerable? Travel bans themselves are just, you know, they can they can help make you feel safer, but as we can see, that nothing really works when mm. in a hyper-connected world. Annie, thank you so much for talking to us and, you know, we're really looking forward to having you on the podcast again in the future because, uh, unfortunately, I think this is going to be a long-running podcast. It's well, a long haul. Yeah, good, good on you for doing it. Thank you. So I know there's been a lot of coverage of the coronavirus, but in my very biased opinion, I think some of the most... Interesting and nuanced. Witty, and brilliant, wonderful, fantastic. Insightful, fantastically edited. Modest. To the point, modest, humble articles <laughs> out there right now are on farmpolicy.com. So James, what can people find new on the site now? So we've got a piece on how uh, India is trying to use cow urine and other pseudoscientific medicines huh. to treat the coronavirus based on this big push by the BJP, the ruling party to promote traditional medicine that echoes stuff we've seen in China where again traditional Chinese medicine is being really heavily pushed 
um, as part of a propaganda effort around the virus. And we've seen, unfortunately, who endorsed that by taking language, saying traditional Chinese medicine doesn't work out of the stuff it's been issuing on the the virus. Hmm. We have, too, an excellent piece about how about the need to prepare not just uh, for this pandemic but for upcoming ones by restructuring the way that we tackle Mm. global health and especially the ways in which nation states have kind of interfered in the process in the past. Both big powers like China and even very small ones we wouldn't think that had an influence over the process like the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So that's it for today's edition of Don't Touch Your Face. I'm Amy McKinnon. And I'm James Palmer. Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and Dan Haverty and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you have any questions about the coronavirus, you can email us at don'ttouchyourface at foreignpolicy.com or send us a tweet at DTYF podcast. And in the meantime, don't forget to wash your hands. And don't touch your face.